Halo 2600 is actually, I think, a really good abstraction of, you know, what is essential about Halo. It has all the elements that you must have. You can pick up objects or, you know, the boss fight comes at the end and the bosses are bigger than you. You have a virtual space that's larger than a single screen. So you can go through and you can say, oh, look, all the really important stuff about, about Halo the, the truly critical aspects of it are all here. Is it in 3D? No, it's not in 3D, but it doesn't have to be in 3D. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. So, my rebellious band of remotely interested listeners, my guest for this episode is Ed Freeze. Now, I could say a lot about Ed. You know, I could talk about his time at Microsoft, which included Word and Excel before leading the way with the Xbox team to create the first Xbox video game console. But we talk about a lot more than that, because when I was doing this podcast, well, Actually, it's an interesting story in itself. So the first attempt at this podcast was actually around about June of 2017, to give this a bit of a timestamp. And I'm going to be honest with you, the audio was terrible. So basically, I thought, if I can, I will try and do Ed again. And also, in between that period of time... I started to think a little bit more because Ed is very generous with his time and he's done a lot of interviews, which is a great thing. But I was wondering, well, if I do interview him again, is there more that I can really add to the story? And I think we did actually end up doing this through this episode. And I think, and this is totally accidentally, the great thing about this one is I've called it the the archaeology of microelectronics because we really do talk about a lot of things around that. And also uh, our guest inserts as well, should we say, uh, they end up highlighting that theme as well. Because I thought when I was interviewing Ed, we talk about things like Racing the Beam, which is a book by Nick Montfort and Ian Bocost. And we also talked about Joe DeCure. Now, you know, Joe, I've known for several years as of the end of 2017 when this is recorded. And I thought, well, if I can, it would be nice to get some of those people on to maybe highlight some of the points that we're talking about as we go through the interview. Nick very kindly uh, offered up his time one day, so I recorded him a little bit. Now, Nick is uh, an associate professor at MIT, um, and he uh, works on digital media. And then Joe, well, Joe, if you uh, go back to number 18, we give a we give an introduction to him there. But Joe's a legend in the uh, video game and personal computing world, having worked on the Atari 2600, which we talk about a lot, the uh, 8-bit family of Atari computers, and the Amiga computer as well. And as I said, before, he also had a massive input on uh, USB as a standard. So throughout this interview, Ed and I talk about a number of things, uh, which include the relationship between hardware and software, but also as well, I think, the relationship between technologies and the users and how users can do things creators never really, maybe not so much considered, but thought it would happen that way. Certainly when we talk about the Atari 2600 and Nick as well also in his sound bites talk about, talks about this. When we talk about the 2600, it's all about working with what you've got and how to be resourceful. I think that is a key takeaway if, you know, we're talking about a podcast that's about technology and people. Because obviously a big thing in the technology world, and certainly in terms of the content of this podcast, is the idea of planned obsolescence. And that's something that companies like Apple, not to single them out, but they're a good example, have become very good at. You know, this idea of a, a consumption cycle. 
And I think what Ed is doing in his openly archaeological endeavours um, through his work in Egypt, but also as well, I think if you go to his blog posts, which are in the links below here, Ed is very much tackling the material culture of microelectronics in his lifetime that have also influenced his life and his career path. So arcade systems, which he is doing a lot of work on to find the earliest Easter eggs and subtle quirky nuances, that's all in there. But also as well, I think because he's a people person, but he's also somebody with a high technical skill set, he has the marriage of skills and knowledge needed to really highlight some wonderful things about older technology or technology that, I don't know, I guess, you know, retro is becoming fashionable again. So, you know, he's, he's, he's bringing it even more back in fashion, certainly with Halo 2600, which we talk about as well. Anyway, that's enough from me for now. There will be an Easter egg at the end because we did have some stuff that I thought, well, maybe I'll edit it down a bit and I'll clip it out and uh, I'll, I'll put it in somewhere else if I can. So there will be a few little snippets at the end there. So do listen until the end if you're interested. And as always, before I do leave you with Ed, you know, follow us on the Twitters, the Facebooks, the SoundClouds and follow the links on the SoundClouds and the remotely interested website page and all of that good stuff. So I've got two boys, 13 and 15, and uh, they're really important to me. Keep me very busy. They're both uh, big gamers uh, and uh, we're all big anime fans. So we're uh, uh, to give you a sense of how big we are into anime. We've watched every episode of One Piece. So that's. There's 800 of those if you're not into anime. So. You know what? I, I have not at all watched any of that. The last <laughs> thing I watched closely related to that was Castlevania, which I thought was very good, by the way. Castlevania, we watched that. That was good. I'm in the middle of building a house, so that's a big project. Uh, for work, I still work a fair amount. I, do, uh, I work as a board member or advisor to a lot of different companies. Uh, you can poke around on my LinkedIn if you want to see a big list, but it's kind of a mix of nonprofit and for-profit groups like, um, the nonprofit stuff. I work with our, our science center here. I work with the Smithsonian American art museum, uh, international game developers association foundation, uh, stuff like that. And then the for-profit, there's some virtual reality stuff, uh, some gaming related stuff. So that's my work stuff. And then for fun, uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff around uh, kind of researching the history of the early um, video game business, especially the early arcade business. And I've been writing about that on a blog, uh, edfreeze.wordpress.com. You know, I've stuff like documenting the very first color arcade game, the, uh, the very first uh, Easter egg in an arcade game. And I just put out something about the very first rom ever used in an arcade game so it seems though to me you're, you're a man that's very much had two careers the one that got you to where you are now and the one that you're kind of living which seems like you, it seems like you're kind of living the dream in a way you know which <laughs> which is very cool i have been lucky probably my whole my whole life to be able to work on stuff that i that i enjoy you know i grew up in a very technical family my mom was a chemical engineer and then went back to school and got a master's in computer science my dad is an electrical engineer so i grew up in a house where it was cool to like tinker with stuff. I learned to solder at an early age and, you know, started playing around and building stuff, but really fell in love with programming. Um, uh, some of the first programming I did was on uh, calculators um, and uh, then personal computers when they came out. Uh, started writing games and really fell in love with games. And uh, so a lot of what I've done my whole, my whole life has really been related to uh, you know, technical stuff and video games. And I kind of, I kind of mix those two. So to me, what I'm doing now isn't really any different than what I was doing when I was a teenager. It's just 
maybe applied in a little bit different way, but I'm still, uh, I'm still tinkering around with stuff and building stuff and having fun with stuff that I like. Where do you think productivity and creativity comes together? Because I'm sure it seems that gaming is very much an epicenter of that. How much has your past in gaming and stuff like that influenced your career? For me, I probably fell in love. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to separate the two. You know, I've always enjoyed doing technical stuff. And then I've, the, the game, you know, when it's related to gaming, I, I just make it makes it even more fun for me, I guess. Um, and so, um, you know, yeah, I worked on Office and Word, I mean, on Excel and Word as a job for 10 years. But that was programming and I like programming. You know, I, I enjoy building stuff, whether it's, you know, some cool part of a spreadsheet or a word processor or it's part of a game. So to me, it wasn't that different. For me, the harder thing was like when when my I kept getting promoted, and I got to the point where all all my whole job was like managing people and running a business, you know. And that and at that point was really when I switched over to run Microsoft's Games Group, and that was mostly for my own sanity because you know then then I would at least if 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 all I could do every day was you know manage people and run a business, I could at least do it in an area that I really had a passion for, which was gaming. And that turned out to be super fun. I mean, I got to fly all over the world and meet all kinds of, you know, game designers who I, I had been playing their games for years and respected. And um, and there's fun challenges in building a business, too. Certainly being part of Xbox was super fun. So probably my core comfort isn't that. My core comfort is more, uh, you know, doing doing technical game-related stuff. It seemed really obvious to myself and Ian Bogus to do a book about the Atari VCS, later known as the Atari 2600, uh, because it was extremely influential in video gaming. Of course, if you look at the type of graphics that it has you know, compared to contemporary video games, it seems to be in an, an entirely different category, but it was acknowledged as a video game system, sold as a video game system. Um, it was uh, the first uh, really successful cartridge-based system, and it was of tremendous uh, cultural importance. And there were actually you know, more than a thousand games, including um, many, many third-party games that were made for it. So it was this um, immense uh, time of uh, creative production at Atari and beyond when third-party party game development started, when people were porting arcade games to home systems in all sorts of different ways. You know, there was no question that it was an important system. It just seemed uh, too distant. Uh, historically, for most people, uh, they wanted to be, be talking about, you know, things that were, well, when we, when we started the book, things that were, I guess, you know, still on the shelves at, at at GameStop, or you know, very much in the in the current life of uh, of video gaming. But uh, this seemed like a critical history for us. So, on that note, tell me a little bit more about your uh, adventures with Halo. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that was so, sort of what you know, kind of a turning point that sent me backwards in time. I, I seem to keep going farther backwards in time now since then. But the the first personal computer that I owned was an uh, Atari eight hundred. And the first games that I wrote were on that machine. And uh, I was a high school kid working at a pizza place and uh, writing games on the side. And um, uh, somebody saw a Frogger clone that I had written and uh, and offered me a job to work for this company called Ramox. Um, and I did three games for them kind of at the end of high school and into college before the video game business melted down in 1984, kind of the famous crash. I was halfway through college at that time. Anyway, and then, you know, I hadn't touched an Atari machine for a long time. And uh, I was giving a talk in 2009 um, at a game conference. And somebody mentioned this book that had just come out called Racing the Beam 
about the Atari 2600. And, I, and they're like, hey, maybe you'd be interested in this book. And I was interested. It was very interesting because, um, you know, the 20, some of the concepts of the 2600 evolved into the 800 that I was more familiar with. So, like, you know, the 2600 has two sprites. The 800 has four sprites, for example. But I was also kind of amazed by just how primitive the machine was. I mean, it only has 128 bytes of memory, uh, 128 bytes of RAM, you know, compared to at least an Atari 800 has t typically 48K. So that's, you know, a lot more memory, 48,000 bytes. Uh, and so uh, it just intrigued me to read this book. I, I encourage it to anyone who's interested in this stuff to go and, and read the book because it's very well done. And I guess I had a little free time one day and I was like, well, I wonder if I could, um, you know, at least get something to draw on the screen, which is hard to do on the 2600. Even just to make a little thing appear is hard. And so I'm like, well, what am I going to make appear? You know, I'm like, okay, I, um, and by the way, I have, I always have this sort of very incremental approach to anything I do, like start really small and then just try to, you know, add a little, add a little, but it's really important when you're working in assembly language, I think to work that way. Um, and so, uh, I just opened up paint and I, cause I couldn't think of anything else. I drew a little master chief in paint and that was the start of Halo 2600. So I drew, I drew what I thought looked like a master chief. And then I tried to make that appear on the screen using a Atari 2600 emulator. And, um, and so I did that, you know, and then once I got him on the screen, I was like, well, it wouldn't be that much harder to hook up the joystick to it and make it so I could move it around. And it wouldn't be that much harder then to add an enemy. And it wouldn't be that much harder to have it so he could shoot the enemy. And then the enemy shoots back. And that's basically what I had, just like one room, one enemy, one Master Chief. And it was about March. So that I started that you know, kind of ended 2009. It was about March of 2010. And I'd just been fiddling with this when I had free time. And I, I was down at the uh, Game Developers Conference down in, um, in San Francisco. And I just happened to run into this group of people, some of whom I knew and some of whom I didn't. It was uh, a guy named Mike Micah, uh, who does a bunch of retro stuff. And Chris Charla, who runs ID at Xbox, was there. But they were standing with uh, Todd Fry, the guy who did Pac-Man for the 2600, who I, I knew of his name from reading the book, but I had never met him. And there were a couple other people. And, um, and they're like, oh, you got to meet Todd. And I met, you know, and we chatted in there and, and, and I just kind of mentioned, Hey, um, I've been playing, actually been playing around with the 2600. And they said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, um, I was just, you know, I was playing around with like, what would halo look like on the 2600? And, uh, and they're like, what you're doing halo 2600. And I'm like, no, no, it's, I'm just screwing around. I'm just, I just have like a little master chief. It's just for fun. And they're like, they're like, no, you have to, you have to make this game. You have to make the whole game. And I'm like, what? I do, <laughs> you know. And they're like, no, you have to do it. it. You know, it was like this moral imperative that I had to finish this thing. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I don't really. I'm not into drawing sprites. It's not really my thing. And Mike, Mike is like, oh, I'll draw the sprites for you. You know, just tell me what if you want more sprites. Just let me know what you need, and you know, and I'll make them for you. And I, and um, and the other people were like, yeah, we'll be your play testers. Come on, you got to do it. And so uh, I couldn't really say no. <laughs> and so so uh, I came out of there, you know, more energized and kind of excited to turn it into a real uh, a real game. And I had, I had been kicking around the idea of, you know, making it sort of adventure like where the Master Chief moves from room to room and, um, you know, goes through sort of a, a series of adventures. At least it was the only thing I could think of. 
so I knew there was a thing called the Classic Gaming Expo coming up that summer, and I kind of set that as the goal for when I would finish the game. And then I had to work a lot harder <laughs> between then, between March and, and I don't know if it was, it was probably July to get the game finished and ready to go. Uh, and I got it done and, and released it. And uh, so that was kind of the start of me going backwards. <laughs> time. You need to dial back to what was the hardware capable of which is dialing back generations of Moore law. And you have to dial back what things cost relative to what everybody else had. I mean, think the Atari 2600, the VCS was the first successful mass market video game machine. It wasn't the first, the Channel F was, but it worked differently. And we inadvertently enabled the programmers to be more creative than we thought. But still, its bill of materials was $65 in 1977. And if you did a three-to-one markup to the suggested retail, which wasn't uncommon for consumer electronics at the time, you ended up with a suggested retail price of about $200. In 1977, you could buy a nice house for $20,000 and a nice car for two. So they weren't all that affordable compared, you know, to sell them as toys, that was a big deal. And in 1977, the minimum feature on the VCS was a 10 micron transistor, okay? 10 microns means a hundredth of a millimeter. You could actually see these things on a dissect scope, whereas nowadays they're like 20 nanometers. They're like 500 times smaller. Obviously, one of the things I found very interesting when researching, preparing to talk to you, was the link to 3DO that was uh, at Microsoft at the time when you were developing the Xbox. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know those guys super well. Um, so uh, it would be natural for you to ask me, oh, which guys in particular from 3DO? But I don't actually know. But a group of 3DO guys came into the company... I believe through the Hotmail acquisition, I think they were working for the company that was was working on Hotmail when Microsoft acquired Hotmail, but I might even be wrong about that. But they were they were then working on uh, the Windows CE Dreamcast uh, stuff, is my understanding. So if you remember, um, before we did Xbox, there was a group from the Windows group that was doing, um, trying to get a version of Windows on Dreamcast. And, and you know, they kind of twisted Sega's arm and, and got it on there. And, I think most Dreamcasts have a little Windows logo on them because there was a the, there was a way to boot them into a Windows mode. I, I I don't know if anyone ever actually used that in the real world, but um, so anyway, those guys were doing that thing. Meanwhile, a different group of people approached me, uh, you know, because I was running our game publishing business, and they had this idea for the Direct Xbox. They were Direct X guys, and so they had this idea for the Direct Xbox or shortened Xbox, and. Um, and I teamed up with them. Meanwhile, the Windows CE guys um, kind of built up their own team, and they were they they wanted to build a game console too, and um, and it turned into kind of a typical Microsoft sort of political fight where uh, each side kind of got together their own group of vice presidents and and, and sort of fought for the right to uh, <laughs> to actually make the game console, and that went all the way up to Bill and Steve, and uh, we had a big meeting, you know, with the those guys on one side of the table and us on the other and Bill and Steve there to settle it. And, um, and Bill and Steve picked, 
our group picked the the Xbox project and um, shot down this other project. And uh, their project was very much uh, like a PlayStation, I would say. It was very custom hardware, custom software, pure game machine. Ours at that time was really a Windows machine, like literally a Windows machine that was disguised to act like a game console. Like you'd put in what was really a PC game, it would install it on the hard disk in the background, and then, it, but from the user point of view, it would look like a game console, you know, it would have a simplified interface and, and that kind of thing. So we were really kind of very naive at that point. Um, and, and they were probably, they were probably more, they probably knew more about what they were talking about than we did. <laughs> but, but, I, but like often happens at Microsoft, we won that initial battle, I think because we were sort of more on Microsoft strategy. We were, because we were using Microsoft software windows, uh, you know, and they weren't. Um, and then we went off and we spent it. And then what happened was their project basically got canceled. A bunch of those guys merged into our team. And we spent a lot of time, uh, the next, basically spent the next year figuring out what Xbox really should be and came back with something that was really somewhere in between. I mean, it had a, it had an Intel architecture like a PC, but you, it couldn't, you can't just run Windows on it. And near the, and near the end, we decided basically to drop Windows altogether. Um, and there, there's some parts of, I guess the NT kernel in the system software, but it's not, it's not in any way windows, but so it was a mix somewhere in between. It also wasn't, you know, completely custom hardware and completely custom software, although it was mostly custom software. Yeah. And then we brought that back and, and told Bill and Steve, we decided, and and then they got all mad (laughs) and yelled at us. And then they gave us the right to to actually make it anyway, even though they were mad because we were no longer really on Microsoft strategy. Moving on to hardware of different sort then. How many arcade cabinets have you got now? It's I guess it's bad when you don't know the exact number. (laughs) I think think it's about 20. It's definitely a dangerous hobby. I had visited... uh, a valve, actually ex-valve employee a few years ago, and I walked into his house that looked perfectly normal from the outside. And when I went in, I found out the entire inside was filled with arcade cabinets, like every room, including the garage. And I was like, wow, that's a commitment. But now now I'm like in the process of resisting having that happen to me. What's the fascination between the hardware software relationship? You know, where does um where does the arcade cabinet really get you? Yeah, so you know, after I did Halo 2600, it got me wondering more about the very beginning of the game business, and um, the commercial side of the game business really started in, in uh, 1971 when Nolan Bushnell put out Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney put out the game Computer Space, and so I got a chance to buy a computer space, and it was completely broken. And I tried to fix it. And I wrote a, a story about it on my blog called Fixing Computer Space. And um, basically, it was a really fun experience. Uh, I got to work with my dad some on it because uh, the TV was a tube TV. And my dad used to repair TVs when he was a, in college. So um, and uh, anyway, and I learned a lot about how they made games back then, you know, when they were just starting to figure out how to do it. And um, I also learned that there's very little documentation about some of these super early machines. And, um, and I think that's too bad. And so, um, you know, when I wrote my thing about computer space, there's a lot of stuff I documented there that just hadn't, you couldn't find it any, any other place on the internet anyway. So then the next project I did was, uh, uh, about, um, 
Color Gotcha, uh, the very first color video game. And when I started that project, there were no no pictures and no video of the the world's first color video game, which is to me was pretty shocking. Um, and so um, I managed to find a board, managed to fix it, managed to put up the first video and the first pictures of the first color video game. And then I've just kind of been moving sort of slowly forward through time since then. So sometimes I get a little detoured, like I was working on um, Grand Track, which is what led me to the first ROM, but I stumbled on the first Easter egg along the way. So I you know, kind of wrote a separate story about that. And then went back and, and wrote the Grand Track story, which kind of has a sad ending because I don't find what I'm looking for. And then six months later, which was just a few weeks ago, I did find it. Um, I, I found uh, what what pretty much has to be the very first ROM ever used in a video game. So the very first time a video game had data stored on a chip. Um, before that, um, the only way they could do it was basically by putting diodes, little little electronics, um, I don't even know how to, how would I explain a diode? It's just like a one-way uh, device. Electricity can go through it one way, but not the other way. Uh, it's like a one-way gate. Um, anyway, um, like if you look at computer space, if you look at the physical, you know, one of the four physical printed circuit boards, or three printed circuit boards on the one-player version, um, you see the actual spaceships uh, made out of these little diode components on the board. Um, and you can see the rotations of them. Um, they were, they're, in other words, they were truly hard-coded in hardware as little devices that are soldered to the, to the board. Um, obviously, if you were going to do something big, that would be a really tough way to do it. Um, so in the case of Grand Track, which by now you're we're talking about early 1974, uh, they put that data not encoded physically on the on the printed circuit board, but on a on a single chip called a ROM chip, a read-only memory chip. Um, and so, anyway, you can read that story, um, and you can read how we thought there might be an earlier chip with the number seven four one eighty one, but we couldn't find it. And then uh, just a few weeks ago, super lucky, it was really exciting, uh, managed to find that chip. And so then I, I posted a short separate story about finding that chip. And um, and I think this is stuff is really important. I think people are going to look back and, and want to know, well, how did video games start? How did they work in the early days? I mean, all these early machines before 1975, uh, they were done completely out of hardware with no no software, no computer, just um, just simple and or not gates, basically. And how do you make a video game out of that? You know, <laughs> I had no idea before I started this. I mean, I'm a programmer. I know how to write a game, but how do you make a game when you have no code? Uh, now I understand that. So it's been really uh, interesting for me. I think, it, you know, I, I try to be responsible and document what I find so that it can help other people. And um, yeah, it's fun. Well, you know, one of the things is that the, the Atari VCS is just organized technically very, very differently than contemporary systems. And the way that one would develop on it, you know, you didn't obviously write like a Unity uh, project. Uh, you worked in uh, 6502 assembly language. There's a low-cost version of that chip, the 6507, that was part of the system. Um, there were custom-designed chips, the, the television interface adapter being the most important that did sound and graphics for the system. And uh, it was very tightly organized around um, a television set, 
at the time. And it worked differently on PAL and NTSC television sets. And um, most remarkably, there was no uh, frame buffer. So normally, even at the time, even, even at that point in the late 1970s, if you had a system that had graphics, the sensible way to set those graphics up was to uh, do it a frame at a time and then have you know, those graphics blitted over to the display um, so that the, uh, the programmer wouldn't have the, the burden of uh, trying to deal with them like a line at a time based on registers. And that's actually how the Atari VCS is programmed. So in, in some ways, you know, it's a, it's a much lower level, uh, very satisfying system to engage with, but also very challenging. I, I do more of my programming. Uh, I program in 6502 assembly, but I, I program for the uh, Commodore 64, which which doesn't have as uh, you know that type of per line um, register based setup. You can you can count raster lines and you can notice things about the uh, the way that the system relates to the display of a TV. But the Atari VCS is, was really very very uh, low level in this regard. And so technically that was different. The way that uh, Atari was making arcade games and then after they were designed for the arcade and made for the arcade, um, converting them into home games was also really significant. And uh, and looking at the way that they ported these early games, it wasn't like the big hit would get ported and the you know the other games would get left aside. It's, this is sort of the, the way that their whole business process worked. They would take every arcade game they made, more or less, and make a home version of it as well. And uh, when you looked at that, you could see how people really valued something about the... Uh, the, that arcade game, like um, what stuff do we have to have in the home version for it to be the same? And so that's one of the things I really loved, you know, working with Ian writing this book was that we could see people who thought about this really seriously, you know, isolated in their office for months working on this project. What did they think was at the essence of um, something like uh, Battlezone or Asteroids or what did they think was critical about Pac-Man? You know, so I mean, people might think the Atari VCS version of Pac-Man is no good, but Todd Fry was really trying. He was he was trying hard to to make a version of it. Well, you're kind of leading me down a path that I wanted to go down with you, which you know, as somebody that's technologically inclined, knows what they're talking about. What do you think the biggest thing to remember in emulation is in terms of the relationship between hardware and software? Because obviously that's something, although the physical thing isn't going to remain for, forever, the process to me is the really interesting thing of could that be lost in emulation if you don't know the original hardware-software relationship or just hardware relationship that you've just described? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's interesting to look at the Atari 2600 because you could say, wow, this machine, super early, super primitive, how hard can it be to emulate it? And yet, um, they are still actively developing the, the Stella emulator today. Um, and there's a lot of smart people working on it. It's still not good enough. If you're developing a 2600 game, uh, it's not good enough just to test it on the emulator. You also have to test it on hardware because the two do not act exactly the same in every situation. And you can look at things like the flashback portables that take the 2600 and try to re-implement it as F an FPGA, um, programmable gate array, and um, they um, they don't completely work. In fact, they they came out with a thing called the um, the flashback portable recently, and it doesn't run Halo 2600. Uh, because I do some tricky things in Halo 2600. And they're tricky things that work on the real hardware, but they don't work on that 
emulated hardware. You know, when the 2600 was first made, they, the guys who built it, like Joe DeCure, who's around here, I have, he lives in my area and we have coffee every once in a while. They had no idea that people would use it for the things that they did. Probably the first really big game that works, that, that uh, was successful on the 2600 was Space Invaders. And doing Space Invaders on the 2600, the 2600 has two sprites. It has two 8-bit sprites. So how the hell do you make spaceships all over the screen and then shoot them, you know? But they've, they've found this crazy hardware trick to make it possible. Although it, although it only has two sprites, you can set it so it shows the same sprite more than once. And the most times you can show it is three. So, and, um, so like I do that one place in Halo 2600 kind of as a joke. You walk in and... It, all the other rooms have up to three uh, enemies, but this one room you walk in and there's nine enemies all of a sudden. Okay. Um, but, but really there's only three. As soon as you shoot one, a whole, that whole row goes away, you know, cause all I've done is, is turn on that, that hardware thing that shows three at a time. Well, for space invaders, what they're doing is they're, they're setting it in this mode where it shows three. And then while it's drawing the three, they quickly reset the position of the sprite over and over again on that line. So it's showing three, 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 three across the screen. Anyway, um, it, it, the timing has to be perfect. You have to really understand this, this glitch of the hardware, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, emulation is good, but gosh, if we can't emulate a 2600 accurately, how can we hope to emulate anything beyond that, right? You know what I mean? And have it exactly right. You're, you're getting on the physical end of digital archaeology. Um, tell me a little bit more about your fascination with Egypt and how that came about. Yeah, I know. It's funny. It's like, because I, 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 I'm an advisor. I didn't mention that earlier, but I'm an advisor to a group called ERA, and I've been working with uh, archaeologist Mark Lehner. He's been in the press the last few days kind of poo-pooing this uh this new cavity that they found in the uh, <laughs> in the Great Pyramid, but but yeah, sometimes sometimes you know it's funny. I was like I get all excited about like something I find like the first ROM, and then and then I see something he puts out, and I think wow, that's so much more important, you know, because it's like <laughs> you know like the first big civilization in history or whatever. But that's okay. How did I originally get involved with with uh, Egypt? When I was in my twenties, I traveled a lot when I could get away from work and um, traveled a bunch around sort of the Mediterranean. So uh, to Greece and Turkey and Egypt. And, you know, I was just a kind of a tourist at first. But it, as soon as I started traveling there, I realized sort of how ignorant I was about ancient history and how little, I mean, I remembered a little bit from school, but I didn't really feel like I understood, like, how did civilization develop? How did language develop? How did written language develop? That kind of thing. And um, I really felt in a way, like, I don't know, it's weird. Like, I, it's funny to discover your own ignorance, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> felt sort of that way the first time I went to Japan. I sort of still feel that way when I go to Japan. I feel like, wow, Americans are just like sort of big, bumbling kind of barbarians compared to the Japanese. You don't, you don't feel that way if you only live in America. But when you go to Japan and everything's so precise and careful and and beautiful and well done. And then you realize, wow, we're really like just barbarians <laughs> compared to these guys. You know, it, it felt a little bit like that. Like it felt that way in the sense that I, I felt like, let me explain it this way. It felt kind of like I'd been taught a lie in the sense that uh, there's sort of this, or at least the way I, I ingested history was that, oh, 
you know, mankind, you know, it's almost like we get, we think we get, got smarter and smarter and smarter and invented all this stuff. And the world is so much better now than it was, you know, 2000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. And the pyramids were built 4,500 years ago, you know, and we just sort of have this sort of superiority complex. Then you go back and you look and you look at ancient history and ancient medicine and ancient science. And obviously, I mean, in, in retrospect, they were as smart as we are today. You know, they were the same size. They had the same size brains. They, they, they didn't have, you know, transistors. They didn't have cell phones, but they had a lot. They had very sophisticated cities, very sophisticated uh, medicine, very sophisticated legal structures. It's really hard to go back and find, you know, primitive uh, man, you know, anywhere that you find civilization you look go back and you look at egypt you know you find writing and you find the the uh the clergy you know you find uh like i said medicine politics you find everything that we have today what you don't find are cell phones that's pretty much it. you know computers that's that's pretty much it and i think that's different than the way most people sort of view it most people don't think about it that hard but you know they have beautiful art poetry literature and so um, it just it sort of upends the way you think about progress. And to me, that was really interesting. So if you want to follow any more of Ed's adventures, then go to his WordPress site, which is included in the links below, as well as numerous other key things that were discussed in this interview. Also as well, I've included a link to his 3D printing activities because that was something that we did discuss in the first interview that we did, but it didn't really come up here and it didn't really need to, but I thought I'd include it anyway. Some of the key takeaways for this one came out through our discussion of emulation because I find any form of electronics that's replicating or trying to keep alive hardware um, and software very, very interesting. And I think with emulation, as we discussed, there's, I don't want to use the term seduction, but there's a potential hidden loss there in the sense that, as we talked about throughout this, and really everybody that contributed this kind of talked about it, is the relationship between hardware and software is there for a reason. And if you're looking at emulation, it's very easy to just click a couple of buttons. But if you don't have a clear understanding of the full processes involved, then maybe some of that stuff can get lost. Now, obviously, a counterpoint to this is, well, you know, we use computers every day and things like that, and we don't necessarily have to know how they do what they do in order to work with them. Now, that's true. You know, but you also have to be aware that even if you look at something like a graphical user interface, the language for that developed over a long period of time and certainly can be taken back to mainframe computers. And you can even look at things like multitasking, which were obviously a mainstay of things like Unix, which eventually got ported over to personal computers. But that's just me geeking out. Anyway, till next time, see you soon. There are many ways in which you can support the Remotely Interested podcast, and it doesn't necessarily involve shiny things or money. Though, if you want to give me either, more than happy to accept them. Now, there's the Twitter page, there's the Facebook page, there's the content pages like YouTube, and again, there's also the SoundCloud and remotely-interested.com. And if you want to subscribe to any of those, particularly the SoundCloud, the Twitters and the Facebooks of this world, then please do so, because I love doing this for you and most of all, love connecting with you.
you know, I, I just started reading more and learning more about ancient uh, Egypt in particular because I had traveled there a few times and then got hooked up with this archaeologist, Mark Lehner, and uh, just started started to support him and his work through a group called ERA, A-E-R-A. Um, and uh, you, you can look that up. So, so anyway, he's been uh, excavating the city of the builders of the pyramids uh, for about the last 20 years. And uh, he recently had a, a really important discovery, uh, a, a lot of evidence that he had been finding. He found the city uh, where he thought he would find it, and he's been excavating it and trying to understand what it means. And it looks very different from other early uh, ancient cities and that it's so well organized. It's there's huge, broad uh, streets that are straight and there's giant, long rooms or long buildings that are how he calls barracks. Um, and it just looks very modern for something that was 4,500 years old. But, um, but he started to suspect that it was a port, um, a port city. And then this guy, Pierre Talley, was excavating in another part of Egypt. Um, he had found these boat pits. Actually, they, they were found 100 years ago, but nobody really bothered to, um, to excavate them until then. And uh, basically what he found, there were these basically rock-cut kind of um, passages that just went back into the, into the rock. And they would take their boats from the Red Sea at the end of the season, and they would disassemble them and put them in these boat pits, basically. A pit isn't really right. It's more like a shaft. Put them in these shafts and then, and then shove a big, big rock to, to block it and then come back the next year. End of one season, they put the boats in. They put the rocks in to block the end. And then they never came back. And they stayed that way 4,500 years. This guy, Pierre Talley, comes, pulls the rocks out. And, and what does he find? like jamming in to block the holes between the rocks and the, the shaft, he finds they had taken their log books from their boats and just used them to kind of pad the hole, okay? Wow. And these are some of the earliest documents ever found, um, earliest hieroglyphic documents anyway, ever found. Uh, 4,500 years ago, date back to the time of the pyramids. I mean, people think about the pyramids in Egypt, they don't, unless you, unless you look into it a little, the pyramids were built in the fourth dynasty. They were built at the very beginning of the Egyptian dynasties, not like in the middle or the end. You might think they built these giant things, you know, at the end of, or at the peak of the civilization, but it was really at the very beginning. So there's very little written evidence from this time period at all. And anyway, it, it turns, so, you know, they, they read this papyrus and it turns out to be the ship's log of this captain who's bringing stone from the quarry where they knew the, the stone was quarried for that outer shell of the pyramids to the, to the pyramid site. And he writes about, you know, where he is morning, noon and night and what he's delivering. And it, it completely confirms a lot of Mark's theories about that. This is a Harbor that that stone is coming in and, and being moved up to the pyramids Etc. And so it's a super exciting discovery um, that confirms a lot of the work he's been doing over the last 20 years. So anyway, I, I, it's, it's neat to be play a small part in that. And um, and yeah, I, um, I don't know. Maybe that influences the stuff I'm doing on arcade games. I don't know, <laughs> hanging out with the Egyptologist. But for me, it's just fascinating stuff.